Me too. Thank you, gentlemen. We have been walking through a series on this idea of being empty, and I think for us, the challenge has been that a lot of the busyness in our lives, some of it has to stay. We've talked about that, and I've heard from some of you that one of the things that was kind of a, a, like an aha moment for you was that some of these balls in our lives get smaller or bigger, and the idea is that some of them don't go away, but they can certainly get smaller for seasons, and some of them get bigger. Um, we talked about that if you have uh, health issues or something major happens, something else has to get smaller because it, something else needs more room, and I think we've been walking through this, and if this yellow ball down here has represented Christ, that it represents the foundation of our lives, and if Christ isn't here, then he's up here, and he's getting forced out, and so it creates a problem for us that we don't have enough room for him to move. And so we've been looking at that over the last few weeks. And I love um, what Ken Geyer said. He's a pastor in Canada. He said, true, much of true ministry is not what I schedule, but what comes as an intrusion in my schedule. I don't know about you, but you can't really schedule ministry. You can think you can. You kind of, you're like, I'd like to do these things in this time frame because this is the best time for me. And I think one of the things that God is teaching us about having some margin and some space in your life is that God wants to have the ability to work in your life. Or you say, oh, God, I don't really have time for those things. I'm too busy. I've got this going on. God, I, don't, I can't do be here. I can't do that. And so when you look at this and you think, that's a lot of busy. That's a lot of busy for us. And so if you want to take some notes, I want to give you a couple of things that I think are really important for us as we finish up this series that might be really valuable for you because that doesn't get less unless you do some things. Because if you don't, it will just keep getting fuller because what you will do is you will compare it to somebody else. Well, they're my age and they've got kids and they're full-time or they're, they're, they're this and they're that, they're whatever, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're comparing to somebody else and God's saying, I didn't ask you to be that busy. I didn't ask you to be that full in your life. So if you want to write these down, I think they're valuable. First one is it starts with a choice. You have to make some choices that this isn't going to be full all the time. That doesn't need to be this full in your life. You need to hit the pause button. You need to say, God, whoa, I need to, I need to, I need to some, spend some time with you. God, I need to, I've got this free season this free day or this free couple of hours, I need to do nothing, and it's okay, okay? You need to give God some focused attention. Let's be honest. You can't have this relationship with God on the fly and, and not really spend any kind of real time, whether it's prayer, spending time in the Word. You've got to say, okay, I need some focused thing. The other thing is you'll see that last one is the yeses and nos to the right things are really crucial. You can't say yes to everything, and there's probably going to be some no's that you need to say, and you have to have the courage to say. And I think if you don't, then this gets full. I remember I was, I was giving some, uh, uh, a couple was getting married, and the, the, the bride came to me separately, and she said, I, you know, I'm a little nervous about our marriage, not who I'm getting married to, but what I'm marrying into. And I said, um, so what do you mean? She said, well... She said, holidays 
for my husband's side of the family are over the top. And they want it to be done that way and that way only. And I said, well, you and your husband have a decision to make. <clears throat> I said, because if you don't, guess what's going to happen? Their side of the family is going to tell you that this is how Christmas is and this is how it's going to be. And I don't know about you, but when my Christmas is this full, it's not fun for anybody. It's just a distant memory. And I said, here's what you need to do with the family you're moving into. I said, if you don't set your own traditions now, they'll set them for you. And she looked at me like, I said, you have to say yes to the right thing and no to the right thing. And then it was really hard because I said, there's nothing wrong with you setting your own traditions. You, there's nothing wrong with that. And she, and she, and she said, okay. And so... It's a work in progress for them. They've been married a few years, and that's, that's tough because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You don't want to offend, but there's something about the crucial yeses and the crucial noes are really important for your life. And saying yes to the right thing, and those, those, those yeses and noes are really crucial for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. For some of you, if you've grown up in church, it will be a passage you might be familiar with. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you are in Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in chapter, verse 25 through 42. This is a parable. Jesus is telling a story to make a point. And I find this, this one very interesting because a lot of times we focus on the Good Samaritan piece, which certainly is a big piece. But you need to catch the most significant part of this. It's on the front end. It's about how do I get eternal life? How do I get that? How do I, how do I get that, God? And it's, this, this is really cool because if you look at another story about the rich young ruler, this is out of Luke, or excuse me, out of Mark 10, 17. It almost says the same thing. You see the verse up there. They'll put the verse up there. I want you to see what Luke 10.25 says, but I want to read you what Luke 10.17 says. So let's take a look at the verse. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what, must, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Hold that there. I want to read you out of Mark 10.17. This is the rich young ruler. And look at what he said. He said, And he was, sitting, he was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Interesting, isn't it? Because the lawyer, a, a good lawyer, knows the answer to that question. Am I right, Paula? I know that. A good lawyer knows the answer to almost every question they ask, or they should, because they know where they're going with it. The lawyer comes up, does he know the answer to this question? Probably. And Jesus is now going to put him to the test. He says, he goes, what must I do? It's a test. First off, he's really not interested in the answer. He just is trying to make himself look spiritual. Okay? Now, in that culture, law-abiding, following the law was, for most of the religious people of his day, was the ticket, in their estimation, into heaven. 
if I just follow all of these rules, then I'm going to be good. I'm going to make it. Now, you have to wonder, him like the rich young ruler, there was a hint of, I think I'm missing something. Something's not quite all there. Because I'm following all these rules, but somewhere in the deep recesses of my soul, something's not quite right. And he doesn't say it, but the fact that he runs up to him, he's not only justifying himself, but he's also trying to make sure, trying to make sure. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Teacher, what must I do? He believed that that was the way. To get to God was through good, just keeping all the laws. And I love this because the most important question either any of us will ask is how do I inherit eternal life? How do I inherit that? That's the question. And Jesus really got two messages in this little parable that uh, I kind of, you kind of skip over that to this Good Samaritan story, and certainly it has a lot of merit, but that first piece is the really important piece. And so look at what happens. This is what he says. Then Jesus turns it back on him. He, and he said to him, what is written in the law? And here's a key thing that Jesus says, how do you read it? Because isn't it true that we can read God's law, but then we can interpret it however we want? We can, we can apply it however we like based on what we want or don't want. He says, how do you read it? And he has the answer to the question that he already asked Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, how do you read it? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a great pass. This is, he is answering correctly. And this is not some new concept. He is taking it out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19.18. He's taking it right out of Old Testament. He would likely have had this memorized because of the upbringing that he had. He knew this. He had it clicked in his head. He was good. He was good to go. And Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All you got to do is love God with all of your heart and love people and you'll have eternal life. Okay. Now let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength? No. We, would, we have aspirations for that. And so he knows this scripture, and he's like, um, is there another way? Because this one's kind of hard. Has anybody ever loved their neighbor as themselves? No. See, because most of us, if push comes to shove, it's self-preservation mode. Let's be honest. We, we, we're going to... We're not going to love our neighbors quite as much as we love ourselves for self-preservation. We're just not. And that's why he's emphasizing love God, love people. He's making a very good point. And I, and I was thinking about this. I was thinking, what is, what is going through this, this lawyer's mind when he says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love neighbors as yourself? He's like, do you think he's calculating do you think he's going, hmm? 
Because look at what he does in verse 29. Have you ever known somebody that there's a point where they should just stop talking? That it will get worse if you keep talking. I'm learning that in the parenting world, that if you keep talking, it's going to get worse. And I've, I've told my daughter, choose your words wisely. Have you ever been around that, that person at work that just, they take the conversation just one more than they should have? Or your child is in a little bit of trouble, and then now they're going to be in a, a lot of trouble because they've talked too much. They've said things that they are, they've, they've spouted off in a way. They've made a derogatory comment. They, they, and this is this guy. He's like, if you just would have stopped talking, this story probably looks a little different. And so in verse 29, it says this, it says, but he, desiring to justify himself, Jesus, who's my neighbor? He should have stopped talking. He should have stopped talking. Now, see, this is a powerful question because he is asking about who's my neighbor because he knows that the kind of neighbors I hang out with, well, I can go hang out with them. I can go talk to those guys. See, when Jesus says to go love your neighbor, he's not talking about the people most like you. He's talking about the people least like you. And so this lawyer has no idea that he is about to take him on a journey that is completely opposite what he is thinking. And so these balls can represent how you see people as much as anything. Not only can they be busy, but they can also be perceptions of people. And you can fill it up with, well, I don't, they live over on that side. Well, they live over there, and they, they're this way, and they're that way, and I'm, you know, God, I have, a, I have a box, and those people are my neighbor. Those are the people that I see. Those are the people that I'm most likely to have a conversation with. Those are people I'm most likely to invite to church. And he was justifying. He was trying to figure out, well, maybe the easier of the two is to love my neighbor. I can't do love your God with all your heart and all your soul. Because you know what's different about that one? This one that I'm reading, then look at, because look at what, look at what the kid said, the rich young ruler, he said, um, he's a good teacher, I have kept them from my youth. Really? You kept all the laws since you were young? Uh, I don't think so. This guy doesn't even admit that. He doesn't go, God, I've loved you with all my heart, soul, and mind, and strength. He doesn't even say that. He doesn't even say, I've loved my neighbors as myself. He just says, who's my neighbor? Like, it's going to be somebody that I'm really, I'm really, we have, we have common ground about everything. Who's my neighbor? And he's like, I think if I find out who's my neighbor and I can love them, then that will get me into heaven because that's the easier of the two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength seems really hard. But if God said, if I, who's my neighbor? Well, those are people that are most like me, and those are really people easy to love. And that's where he's going to send me. That was his thought. Oh, I wrote this down. <laughs> the lawyer never in his wildest dreams thought God would, re- would define his neighbor as a hurting man in a rough part of the town from a different ethnic group who needed his compassion. For most Jews, a neighbor was another Jew, 
not a Samaritan or a Gentile. See, for most Jews, they considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. They were intermarried, and so they weren't what they called pure Jews. And so there was this great division between them, and they did not associate with each other at all. Matter of fact, the Jews had great disdain and Samaritans great disdain for each other. And so here he was about to tell him a story and how his own brethren didn't even offer any help. And so he says this, verse 30. He's not done with him at this point. Now let me just tell you, whenever Jesus is having a conversation, there's rarely it's just you and him. That means there's other people listening. And it's a pretty humbling moment because all of these people are going, well, then who's my neighbor? Because apparently it's not the people that are most like me. They're the least like me. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the, the path down to Jericho is a rough path. It's, it's narrow. It's hard to get to. You've got to kind of meander down. And it, uh, robbers are always looking for a pocket to pick, something to take. And they, they look at somebody and they think, oh, I'm not messing with any priests or Levites because God might strike me down. But uh, somebody by themselves, it doesn't look like they're holding some sort of title. Um, they're easy pickings. There's less consequence. And then look at what he has in verse 31. It says, And now by chance a priest was going down the road, and the Scripture says that he saw him. He passed on the other side. He saw him. Now, the priest is probably going home or to an engagement. We don't know which. But one way or other, he's going somewhere. And he sees this half-dead person And you know what he's looking at? He's looking at, if I look back in the old law, because I know the law. I know what it's written in the Old Testament. You know what he's looking at? If I touch that person, I am contaminated, and I can't do my job. That is actually in the Scripture. But he was also for failing to remember the other part of the law that was in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. He was taking the lesser. He's like, well, I can't really help him. He's near death anyway. And, and I got to be honest with you. My, my day, my day is full. I've got engagements. I've got people to see. I'm expected to be at the temple in a little while. I've got a lot going on. He's, he looks like he's a goner anyway. And if I touch him, then I can't do my job. And God would want me to do my job. He saw him. You can see people. But until you actually walk with somebody, two different things. Yeah, I, I, saw that, I saw that she was going through a hard season. I saw that they were having difficulty. But did we actually step in? Because when this is full, we start to justify who we really see and who we actually help. Because that religious leader was thinking, God, I can't really do, I can't serve you, God, if I, if I'm, if I am considered unclean for a period of days. And what he should have been remembering is that this person was still alive. It didn't say he was dead. It says he was near dead. And he says, you could stop and help him. You could have rendered help. That was more important. But he looked at his title. He looked at the opportunities. Take your pick. And this 
was full for him, and the way he saw him was tragic. He, ah. Uh, you know what else he said? Don't be somebody else. They'll come. Somebody else will come get him. Somebody else will help him. I've got too much going on. I've got too much going on. I've got God stuff to do. Really tragic. Really tragic. So you got him going down. Now, is he painting the religious people of his day in a pretty good light? Not at all. And so, verse 32, you see another Jew walking down. So, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, saw again, two Jews see a Jew, their own brethren, their own people, near death, and I don't have time. I have engagements too, God. I have God work to do. I have expectations. I have opportunities. I'm climbing the ladder. I need to be in certain places. I want to make sure, God, that I'm doing everything I can for you. And if I do this again, I'm considered unclean. I don't, oh man, God, I know he's, he's still kind of alive. I hear him moaning. I hear that he's, he's, he's actually reaching up for me, but I, oh God, but, but, but God, I've got all these people. There's all these people waiting for me. See, the tragedy is, is that when our lives are so full, we forget why we're here to begin with. When we have said yes to a lot of things that God didn't tell us to say yes to, and we have, when we haven't had the courage to say no, this thing gets filled up, and then we look at somebody, and we see them, but you know what we hope? You know what I'll do? I'll call Danny, and Danny will come take care of him. Because I pay Danny to do that. And see, the reality is, I've learned this about myself, is when God puts somebody in your path, He put him in your path, not in anybody else's. For you to give care, for you to walk alongside. Because here's what I've learned about myself. When God puts those people in my path, it is more likely or not than my benefit to grow to recognize that there are a few too many of these in here and that if I really want to give somebody some care and walk alongside somebody, then I need to say some of these things need to get smaller, not bigger, and we can't pass them off to anybody else. Both of those people thought, they thought, they thought about specific laws that they could use as a loophole to get out of what God had commanded them to do. Because how many of us would go, yeah, God, but if I touch them, I'm unclean based on the Old Testament, and I can't do my job for you, for you, if I touch them. But we're forgetting that Leviticus is also part of that law that says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor means to give care, to actually give care to this person, take care of them. And so, the Jews that are all hearing this story, and I'm certain there's probably some Samaritans and some Gentiles all mixed in as Jesus is sharing this amazing story, because he paints the Jews so far in this light, but they have no idea that he is about to show them. He's like throwing them a curveball. He's like, well, wait, there's more, because look at what happens in verse 33. But a Samaritan... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, 
came to where he was, and when he saw him, what's the difference between the first two and this one? Somebody help me out. What did he have? Say it loud. He had compassion. Not only did he see them, not only did he see them, he had compassion on him. He felt sorry for him. He said, if I don't do anything for this man, he will certainly die. Now, let me help you out with something. The Samaritan was like the other two. The other two were busy doing life, jobs, everything else. Guess what? So was the Samaritan. Samaritan was just as busy as them. He had responsibilities. He had a job. He was maybe on his way to business dealings or coming home from a business deal. We don't really know, but we do know this. He walked by and he saw not a Jew or a Samaritan, but a person but a person. And he looked down at that person, and he didn't go, hey, are you a Jew? Okay, good. He looked at a person. He didn't ask about their background. He looked at the person. He said, oh my goodness, I need to help you. I need to get you some medical attention. I need to get you bandages. I need to give you care now, or you're going to die. And so you read about the first two, and they saw, and they just, it says that they went on the other side of the road. It's like, I need to avoid that at all costs. That's messy. I don't want to do that. The Samaritan goes, I don't care what your nationality is. I don't care your background. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to point you to Jesus. I'm going to give you care because you need it. And so you know what he does? If he had a cell phone back then, he'd say, I'm going to be late coming home. I'm going to be late to my business deal, whatever. You know what he does? He says, these things that are important are not as important as this. They're not as important as this. And so he starts to say, I'll have to make some other arrangements. I'll do some things differently. Whatever it is, I'll do that because I need to create some space so I can take care of this this person who needs my attention, who's near death. And look at, the, look at the way Jesus portrays him. Look at the way he does it. He says, and the Samaritan was on his journey, and he came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. And he went to him. That means he touched him. He said, oh, man, this guy's in bad shape. Went to him. And he bound his wounds, pouring an oil on, and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It means he had to pay for the inn because the inns aren't free like a hotel. So he puts him on his donkey, puts him, takes him to an inn and pays for it, okay? Which I got to tell you, takes more time, takes more responsibility. Now, it's interesting because... For the Samaritan, taking care of a person became a lot bigger, didn't it? So something had to go. Something had to be 
paused. Something had to say, I'll have to do that tomorrow. It can't be done today. Because now that's the most important thing going on in his, his world right now. And so he goes and he bandages him up. He probably had to stay with him. Are you going to really be okay? Are you going to die? I'm going to make sure, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you live. And look at what it says in verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Look at the, look at the measure that this, he saw with compassion, he created margin, he allowed God to say, you, this is the most important thing for you right now is to take care of this. I've been pastoring a long time and in ministry for a while, and I remember I had a, I had a husband, and he said, I, he came to me and he said, you know, I need some parenting advice about pretty significant issue with his kid. And I said, well, that's a bit out of my skill set. I said, but I have a place that I can send you that would give you some wisdom on how to, he goes, I don't really have time for that. And I said, but you want the help. He goes, yeah, but don't you have something quick? I'm like, what, what do you want me to give you, a prescription? I mean, I'm like, what do, you, what do you want? He said, well, just, just give me some things to do. I said, you need more than that. He said, I don't have time for that. I said, when your daughter craters, somehow you're going to make time. And see, what I found out about people in life is that when it's full, when there's no margin, marriages can be on empty, parenting can be on empty, spiritual life can be on empty, work life, church life, whatever's on empty until a crisis occurs. And then we all of a sudden dump it all out and go, okay, God. And God was clearly sending you indicators that you need to slow down. You need to create some space so that I have room to work. Because a very full life can also be a very empty life if it's full of the wrong things. It can be. And so he sees this person and says, I'm going to love them. Doesn't care if it's a Jew or not. Doesn't matter. He just says, I'm going to care for them. I'm going to go. He goes over the top. He's, he's spending his own money. He doesn't ask the Jew, hey, do you got some cash? Because I'm, I'm paying for this. I'm paying for food, hotel, bandages, and now I'm paying this guy to take care of you. He doesn't ask that. He just says, I'm going to take care of you. But you, when you're super busy, when your plate is heaping full, you don't see people. You know what you see? You see projects. Oh, this is going to be a lot of work if I have to hang out with them. Man, if I have to spend time with them, man, they, they've got a long ways to go. You take your pick, and you have to change that mindset you know what? When you see projects, I'll tell you what. When you see projects, that means this is too full. Because you see it, oh, one more thing for me to do for Jesus. Man, God, have you, why are you giving me all these things to do for Jesus, for you? And God is going, oh, I, I, there are things I'd like you to be doing that are more beneficial than having that all full of things that really don't matter. And so look at what Jesus does in verse 36. This Samaritan is played out as the, I mean, as the, the most important piece. He says, and which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus, being the perfect lawyer, knew the answer to that question. 
And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, can you imagine? He's thinking, I can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. I, I can't do that. But I can love somebody a lot like me. That's pretty easy. And then Jesus paints this picture, and he went, great. I got to love those people? That's messy. That's hard. And I'm too busy for you, God. I got all this Jesus stuff to do. And he's, he comes over to his jar, and he goes, but God, look at all these things I'm doing for you. It's, it's almost full. And I'm like, I'm, Jesus, I'm like a telethon. I'm, I'm trying to overflow for you. And Jesus goes, I'm not asking you to overflow for me. I'm asking you just if you say yes or no to the right things. And so that religious leader, we don't know how it turns out for him. Just like the rich young ruler, it says the rich young ruler walked away sad. This lawyer walks away going, well, I have more questions now than ever because I can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, even though I know that's true. And I know that that and the, the love your neighbor as yourself are both in the scriptures and I'm supposed to do both. But I want the easier one. I want the one that I can actually do. And now Jesus has even turned that upside down because he's telling me to love Samaritan, which I hate. And when you don't have any margin, when, you're, when, you're, when this is so full and you look at an opportunity for God, you go, oh, projects, great God, another project, another person, another thing then you don't get to be a part of what Jesus wants to really do in your life. See, for some of you, you're like, oh, man, trunk or treat. Man, you know, Danny, I, I'm just getting off work. I'm, you know, it's, you know, I, I get it. But can you imagine if you had one conversation with somebody out there that pointed them to Christ? Or an opportunity like we did at the garage sale where I watched a number of you inviting people to church, regardless of whether they came or not, you are being faithful to do what God has asked you to do, to invite. But when you have those, when you're like, oh, I'm just too busy for those things. I'm too busy for the waitress or the waiter or the coworker who is obviously hurting. Have you ever had that moment where you see somebody crying and you're thinking, do I really go ask? Do I really want to know? That's hard because you're like, my time's valuable too, guys. Like, uh, well, yeah, but that person needs compassion. That person needs you to say something to them. That person needs you to say, you matter. I care about you. What can I do? What can I help? How can I help? But if that thing is always jam-packed full, then it's difficult to see people and actually have compassion on them. There's a big difference between seeing people and having compassion on them. And then we miss out on some of those moments where we get to grow. I love that. The, I, I quoted you from Ken Geyer, but he had a second part that I want to read. He said, much of true ministry is not what I schedule, but what comes as an intrusion to my schedule. Keep, me, keep my schedule flexible enough, Lord, so that when my path comes across someone in need, I will be quick to change my plans in your preferences. See, when you have a little bit of margin, a little bit of space, when you're not quite so full and you've got a little emptiness going on, then the people who come across your path aren't going to be projects. They're going to be people. And you're not going to sigh and groan and complain and count the cost. You're going to say, 
I'm just going to walk with you. I'm just going to walk with you. And for us in this room, the challenge is, is are we going to see people or are we going to see people with compassion? Because the idea of eternal life should be that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and then love people. See, here's the thing. Jesus gave us the first one because the outflow of that does the second. You can't love people until you're loving God first. And when we start to really love people, it's because our relationship with God has got some breathing room. We're spending time, we're praying, we're seeking, we're asking God. Man, when you're walking with somebody that's going through a hard season, man, you're seeking God for wisdom. Man, God, what do I do? How do I help? What do I do? I mean, I don't know. And I find that when God brings people into my life, He's trying to slow me down so I can walk with them, so He can speak into my life. And it's interesting because a few weeks ago, uh, we did this passage, and this passage is a part of that same story that we're reading, this out of the same chapter, and I want you to hear it again. Because he talks about this guy, and then starting in verse 38, just listen. He says this. He says, Now they went on their way, and Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. But Martha was what? Distracted. Say it loud. Distracted. Martha was distracted. She was distracted. We talked about this. I'm not going to walk, really walk through it. He, she was distracted about preparations. She was thinking about all the things that Jesus has come to my house, and I need to make sure everything is perfect. I need to make sure that he has everything he needs, and everything is great. And it's, her sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was distracted. The lawyer was distracted. The rich young ruler was distracted. We get distracted about the things that we prefer or that we think really matter to you. And so let's keep reading. Martha was distracted with her much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, Mary, Mary had a jar too, and she looked at her jar, and she said, Jesus has come to the house, and yes, there are preparations to be made. There is food to be cooked. There might even be some light cleaning. But the most important thing I can do right now is be at his feet and hear what he has to say. Because I see Jesus and I'm going to Jesus and I'm going to sit at Jesus' feet and hear what he has for me. Here's what I've learned about myself over this journey with Jesus is that when that thing is really full, I tend to forget some things. I don't mean to. I don't intend to. 
But if I get really busy, if my schedule gets really busy with church life and family life and hobbies and just ancillary things in my life, when that thing gets really busy, I kind of forget. I kind of forget the things that God wants to teach me. We sang some songs about that this morning, and I just think about that. We forget all that He's done for us. We forget what He did for us. We forget how much He loves us. And I want you to see this video because I think for some of us, when this is heaping full, when this thing is over the top, when this thing is just jam-packed full of stuff that we have allowed in, that we think, right or wrong, we think they're valuable at the time. And I've learned this too about myself is I can add something, but sometimes I forget to take something out. And when your life is super full and you don't realize it, and you're thinking, man, I've got, I've got all this going on, one of the things I think we forget is how much we are loved when that is completely full. So listen and watch this video. Some of you will know the song. You may want to sing along to it, and then I'll come up with a closing thought. He is jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of His wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me Oh, how He loves us Oh, oh, how He loves us How He loves us all like a hurricane I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affection
rich young ruler, I just need to trust what you did on the cross was enough. There may be some in this room, God, that their schedules, it could be schedules, it could be worry pills, it could be, they're just fretting about stuff. Those things take up brain space too, and a lot of it. Sometimes it's not the busyness of feet, it's the busyness of our hearts and our minds. Maybe there's some surrendering there that needs to take place. Father, for the next few moments, give us courage to respond to you, whether it's at an altar here or right where we stand here in a moment, that we'll do business with you, God, that we'll not think about what was last week or what, what is ahead next week, but we'll give you our undivided attention and respond accordingly. Thank you, God, for the privilege to see people the way you do, not as projects, because that's how you see us as a person. You didn't see a project when you redeemed me, and I'm grateful for that, Father. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. I'll ask you to stand. I know Brad or Keith.